This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Okay, um, I think I think it's apropos. Just straighten it out. I think it's apropos that I'll do this this class, which is uh, how do we get along? Uh, because I'm I get along with really divergent crowds of people, and I always have. I've got something built in me that's universal with people. I Meaning, if you have an issue with me, you have an issue with me. I'm not kidding. <laughs> I mean, people have issues with me. And when we get to the bottom of it, they like had to deal with their issue. And then they were cool with me. I don't recall changing at all after that discussion <coughs> with the guy. By the way, I've got my own issues, believe me. And I have issues with people, too. But I, um, but it's, that's my issue with them. That's not their issue. People are people. And if you have an issue with someone, you're the one with the issue. No, of course, we never own that. We love pointing our fingers and saying, they're this, they're this, that, and that. But when you point your finger at somebody where those other three pointing, everyone say, right back at you. Right back Let's try it again. Everyone say, right back at you. Right back That's right. It's one to three. One to three. Yeah, that person does have their own stuff. But three to one, that it's your stuff that's being flared up here. Something's getting flared inside of you because of this person. Clear? So that's our introduction. To me blowing my nose. Now, I know it's winter with nose blowing. Okay, how do I look? Mustaches are dangerous for your nose. Okay. <laughs> hiking with a friend, and you see a cow wandering in the woods, and your friend who's a vegetarian says, what a beautiful cow, and you say to them as a meat eater, frankly, it makes me think of burgers, <laughs> at which point your friend says, come on, that's not nice. If you keep adding people, everyone's going to have a different definition of the cow that's wandering in the woods. This is the nature of human beings, and that's our arbitrary meaning-making that we make out of everything. We are arbitrary meaning-makers. That's all we are. We're just meaning-making machines with arbitrary meaning. I promise you, if we took this whole class, and we all went on a hike, and I asked you all to look at something out in the mountains, and to look at that particular object, and I asked each of you what you thought it was, or what you thought about it, we would get exactly the number of people in the room would be the number of interpretations, because you're a meaning making machine. You're always making meaning out of everything, but the fact is that when you line up 35 people, it comes out totally arbitrary, whatever the meaning you have over that particular thing. So it really is quite arbitrary uh, meaning. And then there's things that are like truly true, like things that are actually true. And when you face something that's actually true, that goes against your way of thinking, but it's absolutely true, proven true, it's real, and it goes against your thinking. Who's got to do the adjustments, you or it? it. <laughs> Thanks for being honest. Yeah, the answer is you. You have to do the adjustments. Yeah, It's up to us to adjust. When you meet truth, you do the adjustments. But how many people have I met, even in this classroom in Essentials, who felt like whatever the rabbi was sharing, whoever the rabbi was at the time, really rubbed them the wrong way? And there is something wrong with Judaism. <clears throat> <laughs> and so you think about that and you're like hmm. where are the, the three fingers pointing back at them I mean there are people who yell most people yell at people like that there are people who yell at people like that <laughs> the hell wrong with you man <laughs> what's up with you yeah so there are people who point with all five fingers when you're met with something that's absolutely real we're the ones I have to do my adjustment not it. And believe me, even with all my years learning Torah, I do get to find out something once in a while that I was doing totally wrong. And I'm used to doing it that way. And I'm stuck. And I'm, but I've learned that, you know, I'm not going to make Judaism wrong. It's going on for 3,329 years. If there's someone who needs an adjustment, it's me, not it. And not to mention the fact that the person brought it from Rambam. So I'm looking at Rambam. Am I smarter than Rambam? 
And Rambam was quoting a, 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 something that Rebbe uh, Shimon Bar Yochai said and was backed up by Rebbe Akiva. Like, you can't beat that. No one's going to beat that. So who does the adjusting? Should I like go in a time machine and go adjust our sages? Should I adjust the Rambam? Should I adjust the Vilna Gon? Should I adjust you know, the, the rabbis of our generation? Who's got to get adjusted here? And the answer is that whoever's scholarship is greater, whoever has a more direct line back to Sinai, is the we're going to be adjusting to them and not vice versa. Now, can you adjust overnight? No, you can't adjust overnight. You adjust slowly. But at least you get the ego out of the way with this, just the simple recognition that I'm the one who needs to adjust. Not, I mean, we're not going to be adjusting Torah. <laughs> now, I'd like to share that just in uh, one thing by, by just destroying pluralism in Judaism. Whereas in Israel, we have the actual proper pluralism. It's the rest of the world that blows pluralism. In Israel, Torah is a benchmark that we all stretch to. I don't care if you own a gay bar in Tel Aviv and you're covered in tattoos and body piercings. You still judge Torah based on Torah. And when it's Yom Kippur and you're going to shul, you're going to a shul that keeps Torah. They're a shul that lives Judaism based on real Torah. And yeah, you're going to go in there on Yom Kippur. You're not going to go find a, a synagogue that, that somehow speaks to you. No synagogue is going to speak to you if you're that guy. But it's Yom Kippur. So you go to a Torah synagogue and, and do what Yom Kippur is all about based on Torah. Now, what they did in the pluralistic Jewish world is they took what's the benchmark, which is up, Torah's up there. I'm not there. Am I touching the ceiling right now? I'm not touching it. I'm reaching. I'm stretching. But this is one of the keys to a Jew is the stretch. The key to a Jew is the stretch. This is not a Jewish yoga class here. But the key to a Jew stretching. We're all stretching. We're always stretching. We stretch. And that's our, our secret. Is that God give us a Torah which is almost impossible to keep. The job isn't to keep it. The job is to stretch. That's it. I myself, I don't keep it. I, I do my best. But as I said earlier, I also find out stuff I'm doing wrong. So I stretch further. And continually stretch with the goal of keeping. But always in the stretch. So what happened is, in America, there was an amazing thing. It was very sad that what happened was that there was a time called the Depression. And during the Depression, many honest and good, good men who earned their living lost their ability to feed their families. And the main thing that was in the way wasn't that they couldn't get a job. It was keeping the job was hard because Saturday was a work day in those times. Saturday was a work day. And if you didn't work Saturday, you lost your job. You spent, Sunday was a Christian holiday. Monday, you spent your day looking for the job. Comes end of Monday, maybe you got a job. And then you work Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, till it was getting dark. And then you quickly got home and you were fired again. There was one rabbi who, who uh, used to get a pink slip. When you got fired, you got a pink slip letting you go. Some legal thing saying you had no recourse for being fired, and there was a rabbi who, um, a Jew in New York, I shouldn't say a rabbi, but he was a Torah scholar, a Jew in New York, whose, his sukkah decorations were the pink slips. So in his actual booth that he sat in on Sukkot, the whole thing was pink, because he had to get a new job and work just Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, till near sundown, and then would run, up, run home and get fired again. And you know what the difference is between someone raised observant and someone raised not observant? Like myself, I was not raised observant. You know what the difference between us is? The difference between us is, is those who understood that our world's an illusion. This whole world is just a projection of the mind of God. And when God says, take yourself out of the illusion once a week, Shabbat, stop, stop making it real. It's not real. I, I gave you this little bubble to play your games in for six days. I let you pretend you actually do something for six days a week. Comes the seventh day. Who you fool? Let's stop pretending. Let's be in love. Let's just be connected. And so God created the Shabbat that we would actually stop doing for 
for one day a week. Who? What's the difference between the people who were raised observant in this room? Raise your hand if you're raised observant by observant parents, not Balichu, but by observant parents. Okay, oh, nice to know there was some Balichu here, and then uh, meaning children of Balichu, and those who are raised secular or children of Balichu. Raise your hand. Okay, very good. You know the difference between those two handhelds, hand ups, hold ups. You know the difference between those two is those who thought the world was real and those who thought the world was an illusion. Because someone who thinks the world is real and is looking at hungry kids who they got to feed and a family to take care of and there ain't no dough because there's no work really. And they said, hmm, God, you'll just have to understand this. And they didn't keep Shabbat and they worked on Shabbat to keep their jobs. So we're all of us who have come back to Judaism, we're the one, we're their children. We're the, we're the children of those people who thought the world was real. While everyone whose hands are up, who knew the world was an illusion, kept Shabbat. And you got to raise your hands and be the proud members of those who saw the world. Your grandparents saw the world, or your great-grandparents saw the world as an illusion. Now, of course, if they've been living in a Western world, like Western civilization like the U.S., probably your grandparents already started thinking the world's real, but what can you do? We're already showing Shabbat. And your parents probably think the world's real. That's why you have to come to my classes in Essentials, which constantly reminds you that this world is an illusion. Now, just one last story on that subject is I got to meet an amazing holy man whose name was Rav, Rav Moshe, Moshe Aaron, Rav Moshe Aaron, forget his eyes, it'll come back to me. Anyway, he used to speak at Aish like once a month, and it was like a time capsule from another world. Listen to this. He says that his father finally got a job where they would let him keep Shabbat. But he wasn't allowed to leave till sundown. Now, he lived two hours away by foot. And so there was no way to get home except by foot. So in the summers, he remembers that his father would come give him the blessing, you know, the blessing of the children. He would wake him up to give it to him at around, you know, one in the morning. I mean, his Shabbat came in around 10. His father would get in around 12, get himself relaxed to make kiddish for his wife. And he would wake him up and give him a blessing. The kid had already eaten dinner. But he says he remembers winters where there were blizzards. And he remembers one particular blizzard where his father walked in and you couldn't see his face. It was all just frosted over. He had a long beard, which was just a brick of ice. His mustache was a brick of ice, and they, these, these people had long eyebrows. So did Moshe Iron. And, uh, and that, they were just frosted over his eyes, meaning there was nothing but ice. He says he remembers a few times that came into the house Shabbat night earlier, because it was winter. You know, he got home around 6 or 7. And, of course, he was in a blizzard, so it's probably three hours instead of two. Do you imagine any of his children breaking Shabbos? Not going to happen. Not going to happen. And, I, and it, was, it touched me so much just to hear the story from the sun. You know, to see. And today we're like... We're just deciding whether we're going to, like, put down our cell phone. You know, like, that's way too difficult. Like, you want me to not, you want me to not be involved with social networking? I'm sure, but, like, you crazy? Why are we talking about this? How do we, oh. The, yeah, I'm getting, I'm getting there. So the bar is always a stretch. We always stretch. So what happened in America is a tragic thing, is that many, 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 many Jews left Judaism. Many, they, sorry, they stopped keeping Shabbat. That's all they stopped. But here was the issue. They felt like they can't go back to synagogue. Do you get why they would feel that way? Who's in the synagogue? Who are the men in the synagogue? They're the heavy ones. They're the heavies. In shul are the heavy hitters. Now, it's Saturday morning. You don't start work till nine. You got a couple hours to that to daven. Are you going into that shul? 
The answer is no. You're not going to that shul. Not because they wouldn't welcome you in there. But you yourself feel like you've failed the Jewish people and you don't want the reminder. And so they stopped going to synagogue. Well, think about it, ladies and gentlemen. The people who stopped going to synagogue were the people with the jobs. Who do you think was making a lot of money after the Depression? Those people were. And so you had this massive amount of Jewish wealth within 10 years after the Depression. You had a massive amount of Jewish wealth with lost souls who have no synagogue. Now, if you were an Orthodox rabbi, but not so Orthodox, kind of Orthodox, and you see a whole community of very wealthy people with no shul, what do you do? And so the answer is you create what today are called denominations. I'll spell it for you. <laughs> you create denominations and and then you create a new term called orthodox for those who are these nerdy types you give the nerds the orthodox terminology which of course no orthodox no observant you ever use that term before like no one who's observant says the word orthodox you know unless you're a total loser and the and I mean, whoever uses the name the bully calls you you know, you, no one uses the name the bully calls them. And so we, uh, anyway, but those who kept fast to Torah become the nerd. And now there's denominations. And that's why you will find, if you go on a tour in America, amazing, you will find these gigantic, gorgeous synagogues. Gorgeous. Gigantic stained glass windows that are three, four, five stories high. Arcs where you put the Torah that are just like the most beautiful maybe in the Jewish world. Seating for thousands, some of them. And absolutely no one praying there. There's nobody there. Because when you take the stretch out of Judaism, they stop coming. This is what I said is the secret to Jewish longevity is the stretch. Think about the stretch that snowman made. Coming home to his family. He was putting in some stretch. That was stretch. You take the stretch out, they stop coming. Now, it's weird because you would have thought that creating denominations would have been like perfect for, would have been perfect for like, you know, kind of being a good catch all. And it was. But the next generation said, Mom and Dad, don't stretch. You know why? Because they keep putting the bar where their current behavior is, right? I have my behavior, you have your behavior, and then there's Torahs up there. That's the bar. Let's put it like, you know, right there on the ceiling. Yeah? We're all stretching. But as soon as you take the stretch out, you put the bar where people's current behavior, which means you're going to have to move the bar because the behavior changes. Every 10 years, 5 years, there's new, new behaviors of where people are at. And so they, they just keep moving the bar down. But that washes Torah out. And then it becomes, if Torah becomes the next tool in the in the uh, in the great Greek fight for moral relativity there's nothing true anymore there's no moral imperative it's a moral relative not a moral imperative you take away the moral imperative so the question is how do we all get along and every person, how do we get along with each other? So I'm going to give you a couple of hints on how to get along. One of the ways you get along is called see the innocence. Everyone say see the innocence. It's going to be step one. We'll call this, uh, maybe I should get that off the board. <laughs> That's not nice, Rabbi. I've got this whole issue in my career. Is I, 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 Can I speak off the... Off the topic from 
at this issue in my career is I, I have a side of me that's extremely fiery, rebellious, rough. It's a, I'm one of these Abraham souls. You know, Abraham burned his father's idols. He left them smoldering there. His father came down to his idol. He was an idol maker. His father comes downstairs to his idol shop, and he's like, what happened? You know, everything I'm working on is destroyed. And Abraham said, oh, I guess one of the idols must have done it. <laughs> Clearly pointing out the fact that idols don't do anything. So why are you making idols, Dad? It'd be the equivalent of maybe Steven Spielberg's coming downstairs one day and finding all of his, uh, what do you call those awards you win if you do good films? Oscar. Oscar? All his Oscars are smoldering. And his daughter, Mrs., you know, young Spielberg's, who's been, like, tripping on some psychedelic drug all night, has, like, decided to do an offering of all of his Oscars. <laughs> you know, and he comes downstairs to his hippie daughter, because everyone knows people like that have hippie daughters. And, and he's like, what have you done to all my Oscars? And she's like, Dad, it's meaningless. So the first is to... Anyway, but that's, that's my issue with my career is I, I have, I'm an Avraham soul. There are people who are Yitzchak souls. They're very good with systems. And systems are important, and Yitzchak personalities are important as well. We should keep them away from leadership, obviously. But they're excellent to hire. I've had a Yitzchak working for me for like 12 years now. I would never get anything done without my Yitzchak. Who's today, who's today named Ruthie, by the way. But it uh, doesn't matter. She's a Yitzchak personality. If you think about women pregnant at the Kotel, have you guys ever thought about women pregnant at the Kotel? Just kidding. Um, if you think about women pregnant, if you think about a woman praying at the Kotel, you know, like, uh, let's say a Hasidish woman, she's praying at the Kotel, or any other lady praying. She's like, oh, Hashem, please, let it be a Sadik or a Tzadikis. You know, and the father's on the other side of the Mechitza going, should be a grace of Tzadik. She should be a grace and yeah. They're saying that their kid should be so holy. But you know what they're really saying? They're really saying, God, please make sure you don't give me an Abraham. Don't give me an Abraham. I know it's in our gene pool. I know it's like Russian roulette when you have babies. That you could wind up with an Abraham. Just not our family, please. I don't want any phone calls home from the principal. I don't want to be called out of some park because my kid was doing something crazy. I don't want to be the father of Abraham. Just give me a Yitzchak, please. A good to Maya. A good to Inga. No Abrahams, please. And guess who leads? Guess who leads every institution today? Abrahams or Yitzchaks in the Jewish, in the observant world? All Yitzchaks. All Yitzchaks. That's why I said keep them out of leadership. I don't care if 90% of the people working in an educational organization are Yitzchaks. They should be Yitzchaks. But they shouldn't be leading it. Because once they get into leadership, we're all in trouble. Why? We're all in trouble. What? Why? Why? Oh, because, they, because a leader of anything has to be involved with what's called dynamism. Dynamism is the way of God's world. God's world is dynamic. So what happens is when someone has an idea and creates, let's say, an institution or creates some kind of organization or a website or anything that they create, so that person's obviously at the top. They're the ones who made it. But if it's not an Avram personality, what happens is they, they, they white-knuckle squeeze the top, and they don't allow the percolating of change and, and, and uh, you know, the constant dynamism of humanity. They don't allow it to rise. That's why so many countries have to be overthrown instead of just simply a change of the guard. That's why there's revolution. People get revolted at the current leadership because things have changed. Society changes as life goes on. And so you've got to be able to percolate up. And the upper leadership either has to move their way of thinking or move over and let new thinking come in. And that is the way leadership's supposed to be. But unfortunately, it doesn't work that way. And, and sadly, I've seen this with my own eyes. And I'm, you can throw this right in the waste basket on your way out. But I've seen it with my own eyes. Avraham personalities that couldn't fight, couldn't fight their Yitzchak assistants. Meaning they needed assistance. 
And the Avram personality let his assistants steal the steal the magic and destroy the destroy so much. And and so the question then arises is who's leading our generation today in the Torah world? Is it the actual smiley, loving, caring Gedoilim? Or is it the Askani? Who are Askanim are always system system people. Who's actually leading? These over 100-year-old smiley holy tzaddikim? Or is it the Askani? So I hope it's the tzaddikim, the gedolim. I hope it's them. And, but I have seen with my own eyes a couple of situations where it was quite the opposite. And he was just constantly being put in front of everything. And I, I did have a conversation with one great tzaddik of our generation. Still alive, thank God he should live well be well, even though he's extremely old, he should continue aging gracefully. Um, I remember explaining to him internet, I got nowhere, by the way, after 15 minutes, so I gave up. <laughs> I gave up, I got someone else on the phone. But he was trying to figure out what internet was. Uh, but before we ended our phone call, when we gave up this discussion, because it just didn't go, the, uh, it's funny how internet seems so natural to us, but it, to him, this generation he's from, it was like, I could not get it through there. And he, uh, anyway, but at the end, I did mention to him, you know, I've seen your name on several internet, uh, anti-internet posters and, and literature. I mean, many times your name's been on there. And he's just like, too many questions, you know, and, and that was it. But he didn't know what internet was, and I could not get it through to him. Now, um, back to us. Anyway, but do you think I should leave out the rage against the machine part of my personality or keep it going? Keep it. Keep it going. Keep it. Keep it. Keep it. Let me tell you why I'm asking you. I'm asking you because could it be my reach would be, meaning I'd like to reach out to a lot more people than the choir. And you guys are the choir. If you're showing up here, I'm preaching to the choir. Okay? So I'd like to reach all the people who are less reachable. And could it be that, um, that there are people who do pander to you know, all kinds of stuff, unlike me, would prevent me from reaching that reach, that, like getting that kind of reach. Maybe I should tone it down a bit. No. Tone it down a bit, leave those thoughts to myself, and, uh, and then uh, reach however I'll reach. I'm not going to pander, but I'll at least zip it. All in favor of zip it more for greater reach. One, all in favor of keep saying my truth and saying my truth even though it's going to be less, it'll probably be less a reach. I don't know if I trust you. How many people do you got hurt by opening your mouth? How many people do I hurt? No, 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 I would hurt a lot of people. All in favor of me going bigger reach filtering it a bit and less people get hurt. Yeah. 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 I think people need to get hurt. All in favor of, in favor of just say my truth even if people get hurt. And whatever reach I get, I get. You still won. What's wrong? These people are abusive. Wait, are you not saying the truth and you're toning it down? What's that? Are you still saying the truth? Yeah. Not the whole truth. It's just without the rage part. I think you reach people more than that. Go with the rage. Okay, no, no, let, let's go back to getting along with people. <laughs> I'm doing a class on getting along while talking about offending. Offending billions of people. Yeah. Um, so are you saying like albums are doomed? Like, that's it? Like, no. No. We should be albums. We should be albums. I don't get it. You, you must be on rounds. You have to be you. So what's the Shaila? Can you channel an Abra? I don't know. You're making it sound like it's a bad thing to be an Only to the Yitzhak Society. Right. I'm not Yitzhak Society. I happen to be an Abram. So then... Great. No, but you're in Yitzhak Society. I am. And you're an Abram in Yitzhak Society, which can be pretty lonely. But it's worth it. No, I know other Abrams. You know other Abrams. You're just going to make your own game. <laughs> the Abram game. Okay, let's go. Number one, 
Number one is see the innocence. Everyone say, see the innocence. Another way of saying that, guys, we're talking about getting along. Number one is see the innocence. Another way of saying that everyone you meet is brainwashed, including you. My, my ideas shift yearly. I, my ideas are always shifting because whatever input comes in is my new ideas. So I have a constantly shifting, shifting, uh, you know, way I look at the world. It's a constant shift. And, the, and everyone you meet is their own culture. Another way of saying see the innocence is we're all separate cultures. Every human being is a separate culture. See the innocence means that, that even the worst person you ever met, even the worst person you ever met, someone who you just despise, if you could watch a film about that person, everyone take a moment, think about someone you despise. Okay, I'm sorry to make you do that. And, but someone you really, you just not, you have not forgiven that person. Now, the curtain opens, and there's a little baby on the screen. We're all with our popcorn. Wonder what this movie's about. And, and, and of course, when the baby's on the screen, all the girls in the room go, including you, and all the guys in the room are like, let's get on with this. And, and <laughs> anyway, the story goes on, but it turns out that the story is one of these tragedies where, like, this guy, ha this kid grows up and has this, like, wretched situation. Wretched. I mean, a miracle the person didn't just, by the time they were a teen, jump off a bridge. Miracle. But as they get to their late teens, as, you know, their baby fat's starting to move off their face, and you're starting to look at these people, and you're like, oh, my gosh, this is my nemesis. This is the person who has wronged me, and I still won't forgive. Now, while you're reading the popcorn and watching what they were going through, you were crying with everyone in the theater. In fact, you borrowed tissues from the lady sitting next to you. Can I borrow a tissue, please? <laughs> Just to deal with it. Because you were crying your eyes out over this person. Oh, but once their face morphed its way through teenagehood, late adult, early adulthood, and you realize it's the person you've never forgiven, <coughs> mm, you're conflicted. <coughs> you're conflicted. <laughs> You guys get the idea of see the innocence? Mm -hmm. So every person you'll ever meet. But there are people like that I know and <laughs> someone no, like, always her has a butt. Life was like perfect, perfect, at this perfect point. until she was twenty. It was like perfect. Like she, she That's was, when things went rotten. And then once she was twenty She went downhill quick. Then there's no innocence. What happened to her when she was twenty? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Mm. Her life. What happened in her life? Click on that one. What website that one take you? Oh, it doesn't make a difference? It's like, till she was 20. It to, it, 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 listen, nice lady. It seems to have made a huge difference. From the way you just described it, something, something happened when she was 20 that's made a huge difference. And if you were watching the video of whatever happened to her, you would see her innocence. I just gave one example of childhood. It's not you can be any age. You can be any age. She should have the brains. How about I take you to a house in the old city of a person who used to fight for... How about I take you to the house of a Jew in the old city who was a fighter for, uh, for common understanding amongst the different religions of Jerusalem until, of course, his kid lost his life in the Merkaz Rav terrorist attack. Yeah, you want to go... Go tell him why he should love Arabs. You want to go talk to him? Tell him he should. What was it? Think different. What did you say? I forget what you said. Yeah, it should be different. Have the brains. He should have. You want to go tell him to have the brains? <laughs> Who? <laughs> You'll watch the video for that. Okay. You understand? We, you, we're always innocent. And I promise you, if we were to get you up here and I would start going through your stuff, as an adult, you would have, there would be certain kind of bumps and bruises that have shaped the way you've been looking at things, the way you've been interacting. And people are like saying she should have the brains. But she was older than me. Oh. Right? Uh, <laughs> and if she was younger than you? And then she would have less brains than me. Right? I promise you that, that she's younger than other people. <laughs> And amount of brains and amount of dealing with our life issues 
has nothing to do with brains or age. So the first thing is, see, uh, sorry, if I, were you cool with me interacting with you like that? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> your head said no. Your voice said yes. No, but you were pretty, you seemed like you could hold your head. I mean, you're the one who had the butt. But every time I teach this, someone's always like, but this person's terrible. You know, so, okay. Oops, we're in black for uh, number two. It doesn't justify what they did. It just gives you perspective. No, they still go to jail. Yeah, I, I had to deal with you know, a pedophile case. And truth is, all I really wanted was them to get locked up. And they were locked up. But I had to come in on the social work side of things. And I remember I was getting a beer later, which you need more than one after those cases. And I was getting a beer with a friend. He's like, don't you want to kill those people? And I'm like, no, I do not want to kill people who have been deeply damaged when they were young and have gone on to damage others. Because people hurt, people wound where they've been wounded. Or more succinctly said, hurt people hurt people. I'll show you right now. Everyone raise your hand if you've ever had a, a broken heart. Anyone ever had their heart broken? Keep your hand up, please. I don't want an L, I want a buff. <laughs> And keep your hand up. Heartbroken. Keep your hand up. Keep your hand up if you subsequently, meaning later, have broken someone else's heart. Oh, look around, everybody. And now you can repeat with me, hurt people, hurt people. You didn't repeat it. Okay, great. You don't have to repeat anything. You don't have to do anything. This is your life. Okay? But you get the picture. And that is why Hillel said to the potential convert, why he didn't say love your neighbor as yourself. That's a high level, because who really loves themselves? You really love yourself? Like, anyone really love themselves? That's, that's my whole work in my seminars, is getting yourself to stop the war against yourself. Put up a white flag of surrender between how amazing you are versus what you've been saying about yourself. Put up a white flag of surrender between what you've been saying about yourself versus who you are, which is amazing. So Hillel wasn't going to say love your neighbor as yourself because loving yourself is a high level. And who's going to do that? <laughs> but he did say, don't do unto others what is hurtful to you. Don't do unto others what is hurtful to you. So that you're not a hurt person who hurts people. You're someone who felt the hurt and said, boy, I'm going to make sure I never do that. That's what we always say to our kids. Uh, God blessed us with a lot of kids. And we, we always say to the kid being bullied, we said, well, now you know how it feels. So when you'll be their age, and then, you know, they know we're going to say, you won't do it to your younger siblings. No, they interrupt us and say, we're going to do it to our younger siblings. <laughs> they interrupt and tell us what's going to happen. And that's exactly what happened. <laughs> so you haven't gotten anywhere spiritually until you're finally someone who stops maiming others and we're all guilty you haven't gotten anywhere spiritually until you stop maiming others exactly where you're wounded and for that reason I strongly suggest for those who raise their hands about the broken hearts is that you never ever give your heart or take another heart again until there's an insurance policy on the ring finger you think God didn't know what he was doing you go with a ring, when there's an insurance policy on the ring finger, that's when you give all of your heart. Total exposure. And by the way, sadly, for those who raised their hand, and thank God for those who didn't, is that those who didn't raise their hand will actually have a heart to give. And those who raise their hand, even though your mind knows that you're married, it'll take your heart years to thaw out. Because it takes a very long time to get your heart up to date with the fact that it's safe, that it's safe now to love. There is actually a shortcut around these tremendous blocks of loving, and uh, I think that's what we're going to move to now. I'm not going to do the full thing. That's in my seminars. We'd be here for an hour. That's not going to happen. But in our last few minutes, I will share something very special. And that is that getting along gets a lot easier when you are interacting from a place of 
of pure consciousness. I know I discuss that a lot, but there's definitely new students here. When you, when you interact from a pure consciousness, so there's no you really, meaning from what's called no one, and I did a whole class on being no one last week, uh, or was that this week? I'm losing track. But when you interact from a place, when you interact with yourself as no one, because there's not a person in this room, think about it, there is no one in this room who would come up here and stand here and say who they are. Because whomever you say you are, all that will be, it may look like a diamond, it may look like a pearl, a gorgeous pearl, but you know how a pearl is made? A pearl is made is when there's a piece of garbage inside the muscle of a pearl. Pearls, clams have muscles. It's a little, you know, go ahead and eat this stuff. So clams have muscles inside the shell. But what can happen is a piece of garbage, otherwise known as a grain of sand, or something that just does not belong in there, gets inside the muscle. Now the muscle, like human body, will also work out. Like if you get a splinter and you couldn't get it out, your body will work it out. Or it'll dissolve it with other stuff, but depending on what it's made of. But if it's metal, it'll get it out. The, the clam starts, the muscle, the clam starts working on it. And working on it, but what it does is it creates, instead of getting rid of the sand, it creates a layer of pearl. And as it keeps, now it's really bothered. So it, it's pushing on it more, it's creating more layers. Something, there's some chemical reaction between the action of the muscles and this, the, the piece of garbage that gets inside there, and it creates a pearl around it. So you may have a pearl personality, but it's surrounding a piece of dirt. So I don't think anyone in here is going to get up here and tell us about their who they are when who they are was cut and pasted from God knows where. That none of it's you. It's all just who you've been trying to convince yourself you are. And then, and certainly you're not going to start talking about the piece of dirt that got in there, like whenever something went wrong when you were a kid and now you realized, oh my gosh. And you started speaking Lush and Hara about yourself ever since then. Because whatever, your parents forgot to pick you up in school, or you didn't get picked for a play, or, or you lived in a family where you either perform or you're, a piece of, or you're worthless. You know, there's certain families that have a dynamic where you either are like tip-top or you're, or you're worthless. And, they don't know, and these are nice parents. Those are the good parents. <laughs> oh, you should hear what the bad parents do. The good parents, they're really loving, caring parents, but they've set a bar that makes your life impossible. Why? Because if you succeed in what the standards are they made, it wasn't you. It was the standards. It's what you did, not who you are. So it's conditional love, conditional acceptance of yourself. It's conditional on your performance. And if you don't make it, you're also not worth it. So either way, you're always worthless. And this is the danger of creating a high bar in your family because you set your kids up for failure and ever recognizing their beauty and their greatness. And that's loving parents. They just thought it would be good to set a high standard. Like, we're going to be a high-standard family. That's a good way to create worthless kids. And you'll have the kids that go for the standard, who will be the saddest people you'll ever meet. And even though they're wealthy or Talmud Chacham or whatever they got to, they'll hit the standard, and they'll be the saddest person you ever met. Or you'll have the rebellious ones who just feel like a piece of garbage and decided to just go for attention through other things. When you embrace being no one, when you embrace the no one you are, when you embrace the no one you are, you fall in love with everyone you meet. You listen like nobody's business. I had tea with someone earlier today. It was a meeting with someone. And he was sharing with me some of his perspectives that he wanted to, to share with me in this meeting. We set it up a week ago. He, he was, you could notice that he was, he was like sensing that I was in him. I was literally in him while he shared his perspectives. It, it was amazing. And he, he shared, he said he never shared it quite like that before. That's how safe he felt to share his, his perspective. Because I was, I just took me out. Because I, I start with no me and I move through my day with no me. And you know how I know me came back? Because believe me, me is like the Terminator, you know. I would be back. Yeah. Sorry if you're raised observant. Um, <laughs> the Terminator. It was Arnold Schwarzenegger before he decided to go into politics. 
Anyway, but the famous line of that movie, everyone who saw it, say it with me. I'll be back. So, when the me, how do I know my me came back? I'll tell you how I know. I immediately lose my light. I immediately lose my light loving feelings. And I lose my feelings of joy, light feelings of joy, light feelings of lovingness towards all other people. If I've noticed, and it's really good to do this because if I notice it's gone, like I'm not feeling particularly loving towards people, and I'm not feeling very light right now, and I'm not feeling very joyous right now, you know what's, guess who's back? Me, and my self-image came back, and someone obviously threatened it. Something got threatened there. Think about it. Your self-image has been the worst thing that's ever happened to you. It's the worst thing that's ever happened to you. I'll prove it. Your self-image is not where you start. Your self-image is your edge. That's where you end. That's your le- that's your limit. Anything that anything that threatens to make you have to expand beyond it is your nemesis. Is exactly what you will avoid. You are shaped by your self-image. Not that your self-image is good for you. It is actually exhausting. It is something you have to constantly maintain. You spend your life on a white-knuckled ride, vigilantly trying to maintain a self-image. And the reason why it's so white-knuckled, why it's such a roller coaster ride, is not true. If it were true, you'd be totally chill. The reason why you're so stressed about it is because it's, there's nothing true about it. It's a, it's a fictional self, a little pet self that you had to create around the thoughts about yourself that were also not true. Meaning you had thoughts about yourself that weren't true. I mean, think about it. If my dad leaves me in the park and drives home, you forgot me. Who's the idiot? Me or my dad? Who's the idiot? My dad. Who feels like the idiot? Well, both of us in this case, but I'm the idiot abandoned in the park. And so I start to create, don't abandon me, personality. Love me. Care for me. Please think I'm smart. Please think I'm good looking. And then I just build that and build that and build that, except I never get to relax. Every social environment is a nightmare. It's a, it's a, it's a obstacle course. There are those who will go for flight more and they'll avoid those situations, but they have no choice because it's their sibling's wedding, so they'll drink alcohol or something. And then there's others who will, like me, who are going to dominate that party. They're going to dominate that party. I'm going to leave that party. I walk in the room, the hall, I digitize the whole room, and then I will perfectly go through every single person at that party and make sure by the time I left that party, I was the coolest person they ever met. And it was amazing how much alcohol I could drink at college parties and be totally sober because I wasn't there to drink. I was there to survive. And alcohol had no impact. We're talking about large quantities here. <laughs> I mean, I was, I was famous. I mean, we're talking about, yeah, I know, I'm way over time. Okay, now, anyone going on the rear screen tour maybe five minutes ago, if not, you can keep going. Okay, very good. Um, if, uh, gentlemen, anyone planning on the mass charge? It's an amazing tour. It's to fill in factories. It's like, it's, it's ama- I'm sure all, you know, all the guys are like, to fill in factory, Rabbi. <laughs> Just what I was looking for. Um, it's an amazing, yeah, yeah, you go into the Hasidic world. It's amazing. It's pretty cool. Um, you can go, you can go. Yeah. So listen up, listen up. I'm in that. There was one point where people told stories, and I remember them. Uh, I'm riding my cruiser mountain bike between all the maze of buildings in my college campus. Any guys going to the tour? Go, it's a men's tour, too. You want to go? Go for it. It's an amazing tour. It's really awesome. I'm only going to go a few more minutes for the rest of you, gang. Only a men's tour? Yeah, there's no women on the Meisharm tour. We ain't bringing no women to Meisharm. What we got, we have a women's tour. You have to wear this. You have to wear this big sheet. 
Exactly. Well, we don't have the nice ones. We just got some sheets from Asia and put two white ones. They're just they're just buckram sheets with two holes by the eyes. I went to a college. The college I went to was called UCSB, which stands for You Can Study Buzzed. Okay, UCSB, University of California, Santa Barbara. Anyway, there's stories of me on, on my cruiser, cruiser bike, but I'm not sitting. Someone else is sitting on the seat. Someone else is on the handlebars. And I'm, I'm you know, we're going party to party for hours and hours. You know, I'm navigating crazy stuff. I'm perfectly sober on 30 beers. People did the math. Perfectly sober on 30 beers. Even my voice, you guys hear my speaking voice? You, you think this would have been my voice? This wouldn't have been my voice. I'm, I was surviving. My vocal cords got shaped accordingly. It's my voice. I'm happy. Now I gotta use it. You know? What do you want me to do? Quit, quit public speaking? It's my voice. But it was shaped by that, believe me. I once was going to a voice teacher to help me with, um, to help me with uh, um, stamina, meaning because sometimes I get a concert every night and it's hard for me by the third, fourth night. So I, so I went to a teacher, and then I went to another teacher, I went to another teacher, and no, no one could help me. Finally, I get to like the top guy, and he's teaching me three days a week, three days a week, an hour, three hours a week of voice lessons. After about half a year, he finally says, I don't know what happened to you when you were about 10 years old, but your vocal cords locked into something there. And, and no one's going to be able to break this, and I feel bad taking your money, so we're done. And that was the end of my voice lessons. I have a wonderful singing voice. It's just that it's hard to have stamina when you're singing from a place that's not natural to your, to your anatomy. So it's not natural, my natural voice. But that's what I did to survive. And there was a point in my life where I had a miracle, and the miracle was that all of this fear, all of my trying to be somebody, got locked into my gut. And uh, my colon stopped digesting. And I, after a while, at first it started with la milk products like lactose, then it moved its way to uh, fried foods, and then it moved to protein, like meat was too hard, and, and then it moved its way to, um, to raw foods were too mu much roughage for me. And so then eventually I was able to drink water. Water worked till about noon, rice and toast from noon till about evening time. This was my own little secret, because at the same time, I was this monster outreach rabbi, totally ignoring my wife and kids, and like touring the globe, being the guy. Meaning you would think like moving to Israel would make the difference. Nothing, nothing. When you, when you look at your life, when you look at your life, you got the things that you're, you got the, the, outer pearl, which is the things you're doing, but you got the sand inside, which is the being. This is the sand, and this is the pearl that you're trying to show everybody how shiny it is. That's the self-image. The pearl's the self-image. And while I was slowly dying, what's up? Oh, is that, is that I thought I was, I thought I was this person. I spent all those years thinking I was him. The self-image. Self My self-image was doing-based, which is the biggest joke of the world. I mean, think about it, guys. Can you ever be what you do? Can you be a doctor? No. You can practice medicine. Can you be a mechanic? No. You can fix engine. You can never be what you do. But this is one of the great secrets of humanity is that people are always trying to do and do and do and do and do so that no one ever knows about the inner secret negative state of being that we've had since we're young. That's not you either. Which is you. It's Gaia. Who are you? Someone answer a question. Who are you? Ushi, who are you? Nothing. No. You're so, you're so 
Yes. No well, the answer is, let who she say it, you are? No one. No one. And when you're no one, whoa, you're, when you're no one, you are your your soul because your soul. What is your soul? It's like a kid. Where, what is your soul? Where, where does that come from? God. God? Oh, so you're Nishama, which is which means I have that, you have that, you have that, we all have that, and we can get along. It's a very long way of explaining how we can get along. Because once we all have that, we can get along. Now, I was had doing and blurring, do, doing and blurring, had doing and being totally blurred. It's called blurring, <laughs> blurring, and I had doing and being totally blurred. And thank God it destroyed my colon. And so when the doctors said they were going to have to remove it, so something woke up inside of me, and I finally realized that I'd been lying to myself. I've been lying to myself that I am the, the person, the self-image, the personality that I've been telling everyone I am. And I also realized that, that the part that was, you know, the stupidest thing in the world that happened to me literally when I was 10, the stupidest thing ever had happened to me when I was 10. It was like, literally, like, and the whole crazy thing is that from 10 to 33, it was 33 when they were going to cut my colon out. For those 30, for those 23 years... You know how long the whole the whole horrible thing that happened to me. You know how long the horrible thing lasted. Mm-hmm. Are you tell me how long does it take for a girl who got by accident she went into the men's bathroom, opened a stall door, and closed it? How long does that take when you go like, oh? How long was that? Five seconds, maybe less. Two seconds. Two, that's two seconds. Point two seconds. Point two seconds. It's about yeah, about a fourth of it. Maybe a fifth of a second. Maybe a fourth of a second. A quarter of a second. Sent me for the next 23 years. I don't know why. Such a stupid thing. But I went and I locked that bathroom door and I cried there for hours. I missed my... It was at the synagogue. I missed my brother's bar mitzvah. I missed the wedding. The pictures, the dancing. I missed it all. I just cried and cried and cried and cried. Until they finally found me. I wouldn't have left. I, I was kind of wishing like I could somehow fit so we could just flush. And amazingly, one year later, one year later, I'm a lead singer of a high school rock band, 11 years old. I drop out of school. I'm surfing, mountain biking, and a bunch of other things we won't mention. And But notice it's immediately afterwards. So as people call me sometimes uh, about my seminars and they ask me, like, I get random calls and they're like, will it help me build my self-image? It's <laughs> like wrong question. Will it help me build my self-image? So I say, no, I'm just going to get rid of the darn thing. And when you get rid of the darn thing, suddenly you're connected to Hashem. You're connected to people. Connected to your mother, your father. Like, you know, you know, until I was 33, I know how long my conversations were with my father. I'll give you an example. Can I borrow your phone? Someone got a second hand on their watch. Yeah, we got to put a 10-year-old in the room with us, too. Okay, so I'll get the 10-year-old. Uh, anyone got Google real quick? You're, you're on Google? No, I you're online? Yeah. Go to Google, please. Please uh, Google the word boy with gun. I just got to get a 10-year-old up here. Go to images. in that because with boy with gather shouldn't be so bad uh, seems slow man you don't got a faster line of boy with gun with the images <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, thank you. Okay. You can find your own boy with a gun. Okay. <laughs> oh my god. This is crazy. Some of these guys actually look like me. Oh, what do you do to get rid of that guy over there? Anyone know how to do that? Any iPhone you sometimes like it? Yeah, yeah. I think you It's alright. I'll just show you the boy with the gun because it's not very it's not very clear. Uh, can you see the boy with the gun? Boy with the gun. For twenty three years my conversation with my father went something like this. Ring it's before caller ID because I wouldn't pick up. <laughs> Hello? Dad. Okay, one second. Not doing a great job. Dad. Tell him it's bad timing. Dad, it's really bad timing. I'm sorry. He's behind me, by the way. I never knew I had a 10-year-old running my life. You realize who's been running my life till I was 33 years old? I had a 10-year-old running my life. Everything. Everything I did was just a scared little 10-year-old. Not to mention all the other things I've discovered. You think, you think, uh, you think loser in the bathroom was my only one? You know how many things? I've already discovered about 30 I've already discovered about 30 little 10-year-old, not 5-year-old, 6-year-old, 8-year-old voices. And this particular one, by the way, all those voices, each one of those voices, and I found about 25, and I was bubble-wrapped. I was raised in one of the fanciest neighborhoods in the world. The closest pedophile was like nine zip codes away. But nothing ever happened. Like, that. the worst thing that happened to me was a girl walked into the wrong bathroom. Like, joke. You know, but that's all it takes. It's just all it takes. What what happened to I missed it? What happened? Oh great, I need someone's face to open this one. This is working with distance. Don't worry about it. Tell him it's bad timing. Uh, Dad, it's bad timing. He's cocking the gun. Tell him you gotta go. Dad, I really gotta go right now. Tell him you'll call him later. Dad, I'll call you later. Click. And you know what the boy does? The boy goes like this. Now, when you have a boy back there or a little girl back there, listen carefully. If you have a boy or a little girl back there, she'll, she'll do this till you die. How many of us have aunts and uncles who are pushed out of shape by this, that, and the other, and they're in their 70s, their 80s? This goes on until you die, until you wake up and take the gun away. And you know what I call that kind of conversation with a parent? I call that conversation with a parent, I call that orphaning. Orphaning's when you kill someone way before they died. I got a phone call half a year ago from someone in uh, Brooklyn in Borough Park. He was a graduate of the Possible U. He said, Rabbi, I want to thank you. I just got up. He just got up from Shiva with his brothers. And he says, his brothers... Sorry. He said, he mourned his father. His brothers mourned the fact that they knocked him off years ago. Getting along. This was all just... Everything I just told you was parentheses about getting along with your own mother. Getting along with your father. Get along with your siblings. It's all people triggering your story. Everybody. Everybody. Jews who think differently than, differently than you are triggering you. Gentiles. But when you see the innocence and you... and you generate from no one, otherwise known as soul... When you see the innocence, or you generate your phone, is that? Oh, that's not, when you see the innocence and you generate from no one, you get a little. Clear? So, as usual, I'm inviting everyone to my seminar. And the, uh, the ladies' seminar is in January 20. 
something. 22nd, maybe. Whatever Sunday is. And I got the flyers. And the men's is... The men's is next week. And tomorrow night, I'm having a free <coughs> musical introductory experience with Cholent. Flation Cholent. Tomorrow night. For men. Where? In the men's <coughs> seminars next week. Dushinsky. 52... It's all on. Okay, ladies, shalom. Take a... You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.